everybody, welcome back to another episode of Need Some Introduction. As I mentioned during my recap of the show, this episode we're going to discussing Chianti Shire, the most recent episode of Succession. One episode to go before the finale, or just only the finale to go, I should say. This is the penultimate episode itself. A fascinating episode. If you want to hear my comments on this, I have a full commentary that published earlier this week. So track that down. It's probably two episodes back. And for the rest of the episode, after we get Sona's feedback, I highly recommend you listen to the rest of the episode. My friend Sarah has done a psychological breakdown, a case study basically on the Roy family. A really interesting conversation. Interesting that I recorded that when she had only seen maybe the first four or five episodes of the season. And almost everything she predicts there in the family dynamic basically comes to fruition in the next episodes up until now. But for today, I really wanted to get Sona's feedback. I know she's been texting me already about the show. I love this episode. I thought it was maybe the best episode of the shows we've ever had. I wanted to get Sona's feedback. So Sona, I have talked so much about this episode already. What's your general takeaway? First of all, such beautiful scenery mm. on a superficial level, just really beautiful to look at all of these different locations, such a drastic change from the city, although they've been in some other locations this season as well, or in previous seasons, I'm not sure because I've been to the whole thing. <laughs> the point being, the show is not always shot in the city. It's a nice change from the city, really gorgeous to look at. I keep going back to the scene between Shiv and her mom about their relationship as mother-daughter, how Shiv's mom felt about being a parent. I just am so haunted by the idea yeah. of her saying, I should have had dogs. And Shiv's saying, you, you could have had dogs. And she says, yeah. no, because anything your father, father ever loved, he would kick just to see if it would come back. Now, first yeah. of all, is there has there ever been such a perfect summary in one line of what this whole show is about? And, exactly. Yep. And second, is she saying it was okay to have human beings that the father would get, <laughs> right. come back, but not a dog? She wouldn't subject a dog to that, but her own children, sure. That to me is like a very strange, natural next thought based on what she's saying. But um, I thought it was just a perfect way to distill everything that's going on here, especially then that scene with Kendall and Logan. My eyes were just glued to the scene. It was so well yeah. done. Kendall is finally saying, like, I'm going to give you what you want. I'm out. Like, just buy yeah. me out. And he admits, I have no capability to do anything else but work in the family business. So if I'm not going to work in the family business, I need enough money to get by and for my family and everything else. And given Kendall's assessment of what that number is, is practically speaking a lot higher than it needs to be. But I do think that, you know, it was interesting that he acknowledged he couldn't do anything else. And his father finally, after taunting him, taunting him, saying, get out, get out, get out, says, no, I'm never going to let you out. The moral dichotomy of like, who's good and who's bad, right? And Kendall has convinced himself that he's good and his dad comes back to remind him, how good are you really considering what we know about what you did at Shiv's wedding? So the first thing that's kind of fascinating about that is I like that Kendall's still messing with him. Logan is actually scared <laughs> to eat that food. Oh my gosh, I didn't even mention that part. And like, first of all, on a superficial note, I'm always complaining about how slowly time is inching by. Well, guess yeah. what? Iverson has grown about 18 inches in 15 months. <laughs> has anyone noticed? Is anyone alarmed? So 
first of all. But, um, Which does happen sometimes at that point. I mean, I don't know if you've seen uh, Andrew yet, but Andrew's over six feet tall. It's crazy. That's insane. But yeah. um, still, that's quite a growth spurt. At, um, I think he's supposed to be like nine years old. So, <laughs> um, maybe he, he'll be as tall as Iverson. Maybe he's uh, maybe that's his, his career. One of those things where you name the person what you want them to become. So, um, so anyway, uh, yes, I can't even believe I forgot the idea of like, having a taster for your food that yeah. he's grandson. So, <laughs> and the idea that he legitimately believed that Kendall would do that is insane. Right. When the plates come out and Kendall's like, that one's for him, knowing that he is paranoid. And then of course, just pushing him over the edge with that by switching their plates. And then of course he has Iverson come out only to taste the food. And then he basically sends him off. Dismisses him. Yep. And then, and he's like, oh, I think they, I brought something for you. Like, here's a gift, go away. Right. Basically, yep. which is probably how he raised all his kids. Yeah. Uh, but then what's fascinating about that conversation is first he starts off saying like, you win, I want out, please just let me go. And he's trying to be submissive. And then he goes, you win because I'm better than you. <laughs> and then that's the cutting part of the whole thing where he says, you're evil. And uh, Logan says, don't talk about things you don't understand. And he says, you like use like racial hatred and all these things to, to make money. And he's like, I just know things about the world that aren't pretty things, but they're true or else I wouldn't make money. So Logan is making a lot of sense in these very messed up things. All that he's of saying. that is right. As yeah. people don't want to like him, I find myself taking his side as surprising yep. about the time. Yep. <laughs> he's right. Yep. Yeah, he's absolutely right. I think about most of that. I despise what Logan stands for. I'm not sure that the argument that he is somehow making the culture toxic, like the culture is shifting that way. I'm just, you Smart know, have to make money off of it. And obviously this feedback loop reinforces it, but I'm not sure he could change the weather uh, by ignoring it. Right. Right. And uh, oh man, and he's talking about how long did the kids survive? Yeah. And then the most biting thing at the end, the most biting thing is he says, you think I'm this, this, and this, but I'm your father. And I cleaned up all your messes. Also true. <laughs> also true. Exactly. And that's something that is so cutting it's a fact. He screws up. Yeah. And that kid dying is just another example of that, right? The pinnacle of it, probably, right? The most egregious. Yeah. Exactly. The most egregious. Yeah. Oh, I do want to go back to the Shiv conversation because you are 100% correct. I felt exactly the same way. That whole metaphor of kicking the dog, I'm like, holy cow, there you go. There you have the whole entire dynamic. Of course, like the mom is no winner either, right? So, like, oh, yeah, right. Still right. for these kids that they probably got the worst combination. Like, I have yeah. before tried to justify the whole situation with Logan by saying like, this is a decision a couple can make, a family can make that this right. one guy is bringing in to zillion dollars. Like, so he's going to be an absent parent, but that other parent is going to pick up the slack or they're going to make sure that the kids are still raised in a healthy environment and they're going to have the benefit of all these resources. Life is trade-offs, right? Like yep, yep. I believe in that, but here you're seeing like, no, they really, I don't know what their nanny situation was. Maybe they had some really great nannies, but um, right. parenting wise, they really got the short end of the stick on both sides. The I did find it very interesting to see Roman and Shiv who are always so nasty to each other, but suddenly when the mom is around and the dad is around, they kind of fall back into their behaviors as children. And what I find so funny is so much of Roman's behavior, I always associated to Logan, but all of a sudden I was like, oh, it's like his mother too, right? Because the mother, it's constantly sniping at everybody. She's even making fun of Peter 
She's mm-hmm. like, oh, Bridezilla. Mm-hmm. And he's like such a, he's a little grubby, yeah. you know, scholarship boy and stuff. She's always making, putting everybody down. Like yeah. she can't, you know, but she's marrying this guy without a prenup, right? But at the same time, she's always got to be like, eh, it's just a lark. It's just a lark. You know, that's not true. You know, that's not actually what's happening inside her mind. It can't be, right? But she can't ever be real about anything, right? And the kids have that same problem. Right, for sure. So some very funny things that happen here, by the way, I have to circle back to <laughs> Willa, the proposal. Holy cow. Oh how my funny God, is that? How awkward. Oh, geez. <laughs> You know, public proposals are the worst. Oh, right. I mean, it's just such secondhand anxiety. And then and then this one, yeah, where they're kind of just like faking their way through it halfway. <laughs> so great. Oh. Oh, the other one that's great here is another funny thing was Greg with his dating ladder. He, he's not happy enough. He gets comfy. She flies out to Italy oh, with him. Heck, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> Greg is really off his game. This, you know, I've been rooting for him for so long. He's really off his game for most of this season. I've just been kind of he just keeps disappointing me. What else do we have? Oh my God. The whole thing with the dick pics throughout the whole entire episode. So first of all, when Jerry's like, you have to stop sending me those. And she tries to analyze him going like, you know what? When you get stressed out, you start to act out. And he's like, don't open that Pandora's box. Don't try to get inside my head. There's just more dicks in there. <laughs> oh God, that made me laugh so hard. <laughs> and just the way Culkin performs it, like he's yeah. just like, it's great. Another thing made me laugh about his performance, by the way, is when he's confronting Peter and he has so many ticks. <laughs> you can always see how stressed out he is by how many ticks he's. And when he's he talks to Peter, it's like his hands up over his head. He's scratching himself. It's like he's so twitchy. <laughs> oh, it's so great. He's so uncomfortable. It's just it's incredible. Oh, and then, of course, just to wrap up the whole <laughs> dick pics thing, maybe the only time I've literally put myself in Logan's shoes and sympathize with him in this entire <laughs> show. <laughs> the moment when- uh, Unsolicited. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And he brings Shiv back in there and he goes, what is this? And Shiv very authoritatively says like, oh, that's his dick. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, wait, has she seen it before? Like, what yeah, is that? Like, that's, that's very problematic. And then she, he brings in Roman. And this is where I have the sympathy where he just like, I was like, what is he going to say to him? And he's just like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> And I'm like, yeah, I'm a hundred percent in empathy with him at this moment. Oh God. And I can't believe by the way, that after this whole, you know, dick pic debacle that he goes through with this merger of equals. It's crazy that that whole scene, by the way, is just crazy how it plays out. They walk in there and it looks like Roman's like, well, this is going to go through. And Jerry's like, he's never going to agree to this. And Shiv's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, stamp, you know, a dance on your grave when this happens. And he just kind of walks in and goes, well, he wants a merger of equals dad. So I guess like he just leaves it open-ended and his dad's like, well, let's do it then. And the whole dynamic in the room completely turns around. Like Jerry, all of a sudden is going like, well, it makes sense. They, you know, we need yep. a streamer and mm-hmm. Shiv jumps on too. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird how that whole thing just turned around in a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the dick pic drops <laughs> and he doesn't say like, wow, why am I trusting this guy? He, he <laughs> seems like he's going forward with this, right? It's nuts. I haven't thought about it in those, in that framing, but yes. <laughs> And like I mentioned last week, I thought that Sar- you know, Skarsgård was you know, manipulating his stock. Yes. One episode ago, we were going on about how great he looked in this. I'm like, he looked a little scraggly, a little uh, puffy in this, but I think intentionally so, right? Because he's been like, I- sleeping on the floor because- Yes, that I thought was very funny. I have to have the best of everything. So while we're doing a yep. deep dive on the best mattress, I'm sleeping on the floor. On the floor, exactly. <laughs> like- <laughs> 
<laughs> it's the best or nothing. That's just how it is. Yeah, come on. And his whole like success is easy. I'm successful all the time. I want to fail right. with something. I mean, come yeah. on. Oh. Which, by the way, big red flag, big red flag that this is his mindset right now that he's like, you know, he might be a little Asperger'sy or something. There's something a little weird about his personality. Definitely someone who I'm going to be rolling my eyes internally a lot if I'm around him. But um... Roman tells his dad, you know, this guy's not a clown. I asked him if he's yeah. a clown. I'm not used to it. Logan at one point says, I'm not used to negotiating by eggplants because of the I tweet. I loved all of the trying to <laughs> down the Instagram photo and the emoji and like what <laughs> right. you mean and like everyone's different interpretations of them. And like, you're like trying to literally tell from that photo and the emojis is the, has the deal fallen apart. Tom's like, is he trying to have sex with a game company or something? <laughs> Does it mean he's going to buy a game company and then have sex with it? <laughs> Maybe speaking of Tom, let's say another very important interaction in this whole entire episode is the whole Shiv Tom thing. Well, yikes. Brutal. Brutal. First of all, as you know, you and I texted a little bit, uh, Shiv should be a woman of the world, but she doesn't seem to understand yeah. what dirty talk is. <laughs> This is not it. Unless you have some kind of agreement about someone liking to feel humiliated, which like, right. okay, that is not something I'm particularly familiar with, but I guess, but that didn't seem to be what they are getting no. at. It seemed to no. be their traditional version of dirty talk. And so she goes for the like heart crushing. I don't love you and you're not good enough for me. <laughs> like, I mean, what is that? And then he tries to get past it. But then she revisits it the next day. She won't even yes. know in like where there's no excuse anymore of why she would say such a hurtful thing, doubles down on it and like says this crazy ambiguous, I don't love you, but I love you. I, what is that? Yes. And I do think what's the dynamic that's playing out there, by the way, is I think she wanted him to become the aggressor and he immediately backs off and i think she's dis I, this is my read on it i think she's disappointed that he basically didn't step it up and he's like no 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 you do it right mm -hmm. and then i don't think she's trying to really be she's not trying to really do dirty talk she's just trying to be mean but you know she's trying to like have an excuse to say what it right. really feels right. under the disguise of like oh we agreed we were just doing this as like a a bit right like right right exactly um, <laughs> which is i mean I guess fair under certain circumstances, but boy, this one is hurtful. Oh my God, very hurtful. And, uh, you know, kicking puppies, going back to the idea of kicking dogs. So that, that's what she's doing right there. Oh, and the other thing I found very funny about that whole scene is, you know, her mom says, you should never have kids. So now she's like, let's have kids. Yes. <laughs> Which is maybe her motivator in life is like, what did my parents not want me to do? That's what I'm going to do. Maybe that's why she's, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, consulting for Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> but she can't even commit to that, right? Because no, no. still, she won't, she doesn't want to be pregnant right now. She wants to freeze embryos. Right. And you know what? She's right. You don't freeze eggs, you freeze embryos. I have been down that road. She is right about that. <laughs> but <laughs> nonetheless, like it's clear that even in trying to stick it to her mom, she still is not willing to fully be on board with that with Tom. Right. For whatever reasons, maybe because she doesn't really love him, but, um, but she's really hedging it of like, well, we'll do the embryos. And then, you know, there's all sorts of agreements. And she basically insinuates that if something were to happen to them, she's certainly not going to go ahead and have the kid. And he's like, I would be on board with that. You should definitely do that. And she is not prepared for that either. So right. she's definitely not th thought through any of this. 
No. And I mean, she's backing away from it immediately, right? Like you said, it's like, hey, you know, this way it's like a half measure. Yeah. All right. So two more things before we wrap up. Two minor ones, I think. One is the porcupine, the concubine, and the skunk. The, this is the, yes. the gift that, that Caroline is getting, right? What does that mean? No, <laughs> what do you think? It's the reference to Logan showing up with the assistant that he's having the affair with and Marsha. Right. He's the skunk. Marsha's the porcupine. And the assistant is the, the concubine. Concubine. That's how I took it. I think that's the only read. <laughs> I think yeah. you're right. I, I don't. I, I was very <laughs> confused by this, and I'm like, okay. I guess because Marsha's so prickly, she's the porcupine. He's the skunk because he's just a skunk, I guess. <laughs> and uh, the concubine, of course, because you know yeah. that's. The, uh, oh my god! And they have a horrible conversation about like whether they're still having sex and everything. <laughs> yes. I mean, the family dynamic there is just so out of control and like no boundaries whatsoever. <laughs> so. Right, right. Oh my God. And the mom, uh, you know, married this Peter guy uh, who seems to be a total loser. And yeah, so that whole thing is just crazy. We can't don't have time to break that all down, but <laughs> it, probably a very, very bad choice on her part. Agree. Yes. The nursing home rehabilitation person. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the last thing I wanted to mention was, oh, of course, the big thing, which is, you know, what everybody's been tweeting and yes. talking about. And every thought piece this week of, from every culture writer is that, is Kendall dead or not? And, and most of them think he is dead. What's your opinion on this? First of all, I had remained unspoiled. It did not even occur to me that Kendall could be dead. I did not think that I saw his face in the water. I could definitely be wrong about that. I mean, I saw the beer bottle drop, though. And second, I thought it was a reference to Logan's conversation. How yeah. long do you think he was in the water? How long do you think he could hold his breath? I thought that's what Kendall was thinking of. First of all, I don't think he is suicidal, but certainly a lot of people are suicidal that don't appear outwardly suicidal. I don't think he would do it in these circumstances if right, he were right. at a family wedding with his kids around. I, I don't see that in him, but... But I, hey, I could certainly be wrong. It seems like I'm in the minority, I guess, from what you're saying. Uh, I mean, this is at least what the, the headlines are. I mean, I'm sure there are people who in general feel the opposite. I rewatched it specifically after people were having this conversation. And he's like laying with his face on the mattress. The kids go inside and then he scoots off the edge of the mattress. His face, when he drops the, the bottle, his face is in the water. I thought the raft would like be separating his face from the water. Well, he has his face in the water. And then what happens is that the bubbles, he's bubbles coming out of his nose, by the way. So this is me really breaking down the scene because of this. No, that's you know, more contract. I watched it, so I appreciate it. Sure, sure. I read it the same as you did anyway, regardless of these additional details. he uh, You see bubbles coming out of his nose. The bottle is dropping simultaneously. And then basically the bubbles stop coming out of his nose. And that's where the edit happens. That's when the cut happens. Even with that additional context, I read it exactly the same way as you did. Now that the kids are not there, he's going to see how long would it take yeah. before he yeah. starts to panic, right? Yeah. So he's trying to experience it, but I don't see it as a suicide. Where I disagree a little bit with what you said is I have gotten cues from him this season that he is indeed suicidal hmm. but i still don't believe that he would do that with his kids right you know 10 feet away no matter how depressed he is it just seems like he would do that in some private way when the kids don't have to like fly back to the united states to be with their mom and stuff you know like that just seems totally crazy to do that in that circumstance so i mean i guess there have been i think there was one time that he referenced something about not being here anymore yes <laughs> at his birthday yeah so there was that time and they do like to bring him to heights and have him yes. to the edge. Right. So exactly. I'll take back that part. I mean, I guess, I mean, I do think he's got some kind of psychological 
disorder. So it could be part of that as well. But yeah, I still don't think in these circumstances would be his time to do it. I agree, but I can't wait to see what happens. We'll know next week, at least it's not a season cliffhanger. <laughs> oh, and one other thing that I thought was interesting, a bit of trivia, sorry, not nearly mm-hmm. as interesting as that cliffhanger. Sure. I thought it was interesting that Shiv's mom says she's blaming Shiv for choosing to stay with the dad and all of that. Right. Um, and Shiv is blaming the mom for letting him have custody, I guess. And um, mm-hmm. and the mom says something about like, it was the only way you could keep your shares, which I thought yep. interesting too, that Logan used that as leverage. and maybe in some ways um, a wise thing that the mom did to ensure their financial stability. I don't know where the mom, what kind of family the mom comes from to know if they'd be okay otherwise. I agree. And uh, it's something uh, Shiv just skates right by. But if it's true, and there is a question as to whether it's true. And also, of course, there's also a question that, you know, the mom didn't see them. She, if once again, if we trust everything she's saying, she did move back to the States to be closer to them. And maybe he was intentionally not allowing her mm-hmm. to see the kids, even though she was relatively. This needs to be clarified. We don't have 100% confirmation on what she's saying. But if it's true that basically the only reason they have those shares in the corporation was a negotiation with the mother to give him more control over them, you said, I, you know, they theoretically could have been completely alienated from right. the family at this point and, uh, or, or from the father at this point, and they could have no stakes in this business at all, which maybe from a personal standpoint <laughs> might better. be more. <laughs> right. might have been better for their mental well-being but yes for their mental health they could have actually been but we'll never know <laughs> exactly exactly all right well thank you so much for your time thank you can't wait to see what happens next i know it's going to be a, a great episode i don't know if it's going to be i was going to say exciting i'm not sure if it's going to be exciting <laughs> but i'm sure it'll be excellent as it Possibly, usually is right so yeah <laughs> very last yeah this will be Let's the last so. until next year All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. As we are wrapping up another season, season three of Succession, I have a little bonus content here. I am constantly doing my own armchair psychoanalysis of these very, very messed up family. I'm sure we all have messed up family members, at least, if not the whole family. What's that saying that every happy family is happy the same way and every dysfunctional family is dysfunctional in its own special way? (laughs) A little bit of a analysis of the dynamic of this family. So I have a new guest, Sarah. I'm so glad to be here, Victor. Thank you so (laughs) much for asking me. I'm really excited to talk about this today. So I'm a licensed independent clinical social worker. I'm a psychotherapist, basically. And my background is in psychoanalytic, psychodynamic psychotherapy. So family systems and the origins of people's development is really where my interest lies. So this is just a really fascinating case study about a really, really troubled family. So I'm (laughs) excited excited to talk to you about it. Yeah. (laughs) That's an understatement, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In your personal practice, do you do family therapy or uh, is it just individual? I have done family therapy in the past, mostly with kids, more at the beginning of my career. So I've done some couples work, some family work, but now I just do individual. But I think some types of therapy are more oriented toward changing behavior and sort of helping people build skills, which can be really helpful. 
But my orientation, it always kind of goes back to childhood and the way that our most early family relationships really shape the relationships and patterns that we have in the present. So that's another reason why this is so such an interesting sort of case to look at. I think that there's a lot of criticism of the show where there is criticism. I mean, the show is pretty well adored, but I think that where mm-hmm. the show has criticism, and even I do sometimes, is it's very repetitive in the fact that this family dynamic keeps repeating itself, which yes. is very true to life. Like Sona, my uh, co-host, often brings this up, but I think it's very true to life. And more yep. importantly, I think from the day that the show was created from the very pilot episode, I think that Jesse Armstrong, the creator of the show, wants to explore that when you think about the title sequence, right? The title sequence Mm -hmm. is not, you know, we see like New York City skylines for a couple of minutes, but most of the title sequence is them as children with this like ghost of a father, right? You see them holding his hand, but you never even see his face. You see the back of his head, right? So the title sequence says so much about the psychology of the show. I think think that is the subtext that the show is always playing with. Totally. So I am, you know, we, it's funny, you can actually reiterate some of the things you were saying before we started recording that Mm -hmm. you're talking about how there's a lot of armchair psychoanalysis going on. And I am very guilty, even on this show, of doing armchair uh, psychoanalysis, which is the reason I was hoping to get a someone with more insight <laughs> to, mm-hmm. um, yeah. to confirm my opinions. No, just yeah. <laughs> well, but, um, I have to say yeah. that's very astute. I think you're so right about that title sequence is so symbolic and emblematic of so much of the, the problem with the development of these siblings. I would just say I have some very deeply held beliefs and opinions about social media stuff around self-diagnosis and people who really need help. And they reach out to the resources that are available, which are often like TikTok or these platforms that are really, really in some ways, I think very helpful to people because Mm -hmm. they feel it can help you feel a lot less isolated, I think. And you can get some insight from that but it doesn't replace real therapy. And so that's just one sort of thing about, I think it's fine to do kind of armchair psychology and particularly in in terms of like talking about it in terms of like a show like this, because it's not real people, right? We're talking about characters. Right, right. So I think um, just treating it sort of as a case study in that way can be really interesting. I always just feel like it's important to like warn people against diagnosing themselves. If people are struggling with really serious issues, there's just, again, nothing that replaces talking to a real professional. So I think it's very important to say. And the last thing I would bring up even myself as a non-professional, obviously, is that even though that there's a lot of interesting psychology that is being represented on the show, this is still just a TV show. So, you know, if you look at characters on a TV show and you start diagnosing that person is narcissistic or that person is whatever, mm-hmm. you know, when you have day-to-day interactions with uh, your coworkers, they may also be nar- narcissistic monsters potentially, but people yes. are more complicated than that, right? Exactly. So it's, we are, we, you know, we are diagnosing, uh, you know, fictional characters. Right. And right. we, of course, have insight into those characters that you can't have most of the time with, uh, with people you actually see. Exactly. Good point. Mm-hmm. But all that being said, we're going to do it right now. Yep. <laughs> So where did you want to start? I was thinking at the beginning, if we wanted to kind of do a breakdown of the family and what that like kind of the dynamic might be underlying this internal power struggle. Mm -hmm. Uh, One place I thought we could start with is with Kendall, because so much of the show obviously is this wedge and then 
everybody kind of all the relationships that he has. Or we could start with Logan because Logan is so central to everyone's fixation. Interestingly, I was as I was reviewing my notes, the primary dynamic that I sort of wrote about from season one is still the primary dynamic now that I'm almost caught up with season three, like I'm in season three. And that is that, so to, as a roundabout sort of way of answering your question, I think the primary dynamic that um, jumps out to me is really the ways in which all the characters are impacted by, engulfed by, consumed by, wounded by Logan's narcissism and abuse. Mm -hmm. And all the siblings development, I think can be looked at through that lens. With Kendall, I think even from the very first episode, first scene of season one, it really shows his developmental arrest. And what I mean by that is that he has this desperate wish for his father's approval, right? And it really doesn't go away. We see it kind of go up and down, which all we can get into more, but that was really striking to me. He's almost like a little boy in a grown-up's body. Mm -hmm. It's so painful to sort of watch how Logan manipulates him time after time. Right. And it's interesting too, to see how in terms of diagnosis, he's someone who really struggles with addiction. Mm -hmm. Often with addiction, there is that correlation between someone who is developmentally arrested and who's trying to sort of solve a problem by escaping his feelings. Mm -hmm. When people are more able to deal with things in a more adult way, they are able to feel their feelings, even if they're painful, they're able to cope, they're able to express themselves And often with addiction, we see people who really never got that chance as a child to feel like they were being seen by their parents, that they were being able to express themselves openly and honestly, that people were interested in what was happening to them inside. And so because they lack that, they turn to other things. Does that make sense? Yep. I find it really interesting just having you say some of those things, because I'm just replaying the dynamic of the show throughout the seasons. And you haven't seen the most two recent episodes, but there's some things that happened very recently that crystallized this arrested Mm -hmm. development that Kendall is in. And minor spoiler, because I know, and not to the audience, if you guys are caught up, but minor spoiler to you, Sarah, because you haven't seen the most recent episode. He gets an offer to basically walk away from his involvement with Royco. Mm -hmm. Like, and his Mm -hmm. dad is literally telling him, here's $2 billion. We find out it's $2 billion offer Mm -hmm. over the course of the episode to walk away. And he laughs at this, like it's a fantasy or something. And his Mm -hmm. girlfriend is saying, but why not? You want to become a venture capitalist. He says he wants to start these new companies and everything else. So here's your opportunity. And he just, he can't, instead of saying, I take this money and I'm free now, he thinks, oh, they're trying to get rid of me, which they are. Don't get me wrong. But if life is just interpreting what happens around you, there is a Mm -hmm. way to see that this is a win for him. And he He can't see it that way. That's a very interesting point because in some ways we could see that too as an addictive behavior. Mm-hmm. He's addicted to his fruitless search to the dynamic, right? For, for his yeah, for the approval, right? For he can't extricate himself from this fantasy. If he only sticks with it, if he only does the right thing. And we see the right thing to Kendall being at some points, it is him basically saying, screw my father. I'm going to become the lion 
and then at other points becoming literally catatonic, yep. right? Like yep. season two, trying to just sort of just becoming the most submissive version of himself. I think it, in some ways it's this addiction to this hope that he can some, someday make it right with his dad and right. be really find love and approval. Yeah. And, and once again, just playing out the kind of the seasons in my mind, I, I think of, you know, how Logan is in a way intentionally sometimes and maybe unintentionally other times stringing him along because, you know, at the very, very beginning of the show, he's saying you're going to be the next yep. CEO. And yep. now he thinks he has that in hand. You know, when I first started watching the show, I didn't even think about this underlying psychodynamics. I thought it was just him being, that's mine. And you took it away from me and it's more cutthroat. Right, right. But now over time, it's like, no, he, he has multiple exits here at different times. Yep. He, like you said, he's trying to fix this dynamic, which the dad rejects basically. Mm -hmm. So then he self-sabotages because, you know, every yeah. time he seems to almost have a way to take over the company, he mm -hmm. can never like close the deal because there's this yeah. self-sabotage all the time. Right. Absolutely. Yes. Speaking yes. of self-sabotage in this season, I think it's maybe episode three or so when he's in the back of that cab and he's saying good tweet, bad tweet, tell mm -hmm. me something, mm -hmm. you know, something flattering, mm -hmm. something said about me. And then he wants to hear the negative stuff and he yep. fixates on the people who are being critical of him. Yep. What is that dynamic? If, if you could, if, if you had any insight into that at all. This brings up a couple important things. One is that bipolar disorder is mm -hmm. a very, very specific mental disorder. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's often misdiagnosed. So I will say that as a caveat, because in some ways, Kendall shows some signs of really intense mood lability, meaning mm -hmm. very high peaks and low valleys. Mm -hmm. When he's in that cab scene, I thought to myself, there's some mania going on mm -hmm. potentially. You can see it whenever he's at a high, there's a lot of reckless behavior. There's a lot more drug use. You can kind of see him self-destructing. Like you said, like there's a self-sabotage to it, a lot of just a lot of reckless behavior. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you're right. He is very focused on the negative. There's almost this masochism mm -hmm. in him when they're the scene at the party. Yeah, let's watch this, the TV show where they were kind of, they were skewering him basically. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he yep. said, you know, like everybody, let's watch this. There's something so painful about yep. that. Yep. So we can't say whether or not Kendall has something as serious as bipolar disorder because it's for him. It, as I said, it's very difficult to diagnose and it, it, it's often overdiagnosed. And, but, and it also seems for him that the highs and lows are very situational, mm -hmm. but we can see underlying that, like the self-hatred, yes. right? Like he's just a really tragic figure. It's he really, really sad. Yeah. 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 He's become so. It's funny. I, for the longest time, I was kind of resistant. You know, everybody raved about this performance for the actor. And I always enjoyed his performance, but I never really 100% bought in on how great a performer he was. But in this season, there's so many times when, uh, you know, five different emotions are playing out on his face at one time yeah, and uh, without him saying a word. And I'm like, wow, yeah. this guy really impresses me. I think in one yeah. of the recaps, I mentioned how he's giving that interview and he's worried about what this woman's going to write about the salad he ate. And yep. you just see this for moments. He really says, this is the vision, the future of media. And some of this is just corporate talk, but some of the things right. he's saying work and they're actually winning right. people to his side. 
Right. But then immediately he's like, oh, wait, are you going to make fun of my salad or whatever? Right. And exactly. just on his face, you see that fear all of a sudden. Yep. And it's just such an interesting duality that's always seems to be fighting inside of him, you know? Yep. It's like fragility. Yes. It's yes. such fragility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's so important, I think, to this season in general uh, and to all the things you're saying. In the very first episode, I think about that first scene in the first episode and I mentioned this to Sona being that he was the most intolerable and annoying version of himself yeah. in that episode. Yeah. Everything he was saying was like corporate jargon. Nothing he said meant anything. And right. I was just so disgusted and annoyed with him. Yeah. But the thing yeah. that still gave me sympathy was the very first scene in the episode when he's like trying to disappear into the bathtub. And yeah. it's such a weird combination of things where here he is in his private moments. He basically wants to disappear. Yeah. And yes. then he walks out and he's like, I'm the king of the world, which is what he thinks he needs to project. Right. And it's like really, you know, whether it's bipolar or something else, this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he's tearing himself apart, basically trying to be both things at the same time. Right. Yes, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. And that actually brings up another point. If you think about it again, in terms of development in those moments where we kind of see him, it's interesting. It's often in a bathroom. I actually mm-hmm. just yes, because <laughs> he's alone um, right? oftentimes. In the yeah, bathroom, often right? alone. Yeah. That again, we see him as a like a little boy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he is either raging or kind of trying to like breathe through something. There's no space for his feelings unless he's by himself. Yep, and trying to kind of cope with something. There's no real support. Yes. I think some of the secondary di- secondary dynamics that I think I see across the siblings mm-hmm. is that when you have a narcissistic parent, especially someone who's extremely abusive as Logan is, it's very, very difficult to develop a true sense of yourself mm-hmm. because you are constantly being confronted by the person who is supposed to be taking care of you the person who is supposed to love you the most of anyone in the world is so volatile, can switch from explosive to charming to cruel, depending on what best serves his interest. He plays people off of each other. It is extremely difficult to develop a sense of self in that context because you really don't know what to expect. There's Mm -hmm. no ability to develop a sense of security and safety in yourself or in your environment. I think with Kendall, we really, really see that. We see him alone melting down and disintegrating. And then you see him come out sort of putting on this veneer of I'm powerful. I'm the king of the world. I, this is like the person I was groomed to be. So I have to be that. And it doesn't allow him to ever really be himself. And I think the saddest moment that just sprung to my mind was in season two, they've gone back to Dundee. I believe they're still in Dundee and his mom is there and he wants to tell his mom about the death of that, that boy. He just wants somebody. He hasn't not been able to tell anybody except for his dad, obviously. And his dad's used this as like a blackmail against him. And uh, he just wants to have this moment. She also is just, opportunistic in this moment yes. and uh, he just has no one and it's just so sad to think of you know? that's like, right yeah. that's right and if you think about it what we do know about about their mom it's not really as fully developed yeah. as most of the characters but 
what we do know is that she's very cold. Yes. And she's very withholding and very like snarky and sarcastic. And so if you think about the frame of, so one of his parents is an abusive narcissist. And I, mm-hmm. I will say that the, the one thing that I'm confident in saying is that Logan is a, a he has narcissistic personality disorder. It's quite clear. Um, and I would actually, I actually wish in some ways that we knew more about Logan's history because mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's yes. a lot of trauma mm-hmm. and because trauma is generally, if not always what creates a personality disorder like that. But if we think about it as you have one incredibly narcissistic and abusive parent and one very cold parent, that is a very, very difficult and potentially dangerous combination of, yeah. of caregivers. But at uh, Kendall's birthday party this week, he has this ridiculous location that he's decorated with all the stages of his life and people have to walk through it. Mm, <laughs> it's really wow. bananas. And you walk wow. in through a pink tunnel. And when you walk inside, there's a nurse at the end with a bottle that says, um, you know, welcome to the world of Kendall. And Shiv and Roman wow. say, wait a second, does that mean that we just walked through mom's vagina? And uh, Shiv goes, it's cold and inhospitable. Sounds about right. Oh my God. So now I really do wish I was all the way caught up, Victor. Oh my God. Yeah, funny. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of knowing a little bit more about the mom, the mom is remarrying and that's next week's episode is the mom. They're mm. all they're all at the mom. So we're going to find out a lot more about that family dynamic in that. Wow, episode. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, oh, and the last thing I wanted to bring up was Logan's history, literally, because I thought it'd be very important to know more about Logan. So I was like trying to track down some biographical details. What is mm-hmm. core? And we know very little, right? We know where he grew up. We know that he has a terrible relationship with his brother, but it yep. seems that his brother mostly hates him because of what the company has become rather right. than anything right. in the past. And we know that he, they both have a sister whose name was Rosie, I think. Right. But she That's died right. somehow when she was young, That's and right. we don't know why. And this is something that is so traumatic to them. They never speak about it at all, right? That's right. So that's, and that's, and I honestly was like, well, let me like look at one of these wikis or, or like a Reddit mm-hmm. board or something where mm-hmm. someone's tracking all these biographical details. And that's it. That's all they have. So I'm like, yeah, no, yeah. don't have a lot of background on them. So Right. Which really, I hope sets us up for season four. Hopefully they're setting us up so that we will know more about that. Right. I have to say, if the writers aren't intentionally having a really psychoanalytic or trauma-informed lens, they're doing yeah. a really good job of faking it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's really profoundly nuanced in how they are kind of bringing in these threads. Like, like you said, with the sister, the only yep. thing I, I'm just remembering that scene where Logan pulls up to it. I think it's when they're in Dundee, they pull up to his childhood home. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even get out of the car. Yeah. That they're like, do you want to go inside? Out. He's like, no, yep. <laughs> I'll never go in there again. Yeah. So yep. yep. Yeah. And the falling out between him and his brother. I'm curious to know. Yes, that, absolutely. Uh, I mean, once again, I don't even know how the company was built, but it seems like maybe he borrowed some of the money from his brother and then he built this giant company. Mm-hmm. So that's why his brother still has this big chunk of the stock. Mm-hmm. Or the alternative is that he 
helped his brother out by giving him. Some, so they had to be on good enough terms in the past so that either his brother would have lent him this money or that he would have gifted him a chunk of the business. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for them to obviously have a horrible relationship now, so many things have probably happened. And I don't know if they're mm-hmm. rooted in their childhood, but probably are rooted in their childhood. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now that, uh, you know, Logan is kind of a black box, right? I think that mm-hmm. I, you know, other than him being narcissistic, and maybe you can shed some light on this also, what okay. I kind of find interesting about Logan he truly is intimidating to everybody. Everybody's afraid of him, right? And he has succeeded when, you know, the corollary for this business is Fox. Yeah, right. He started off, Rupert Murdoch, you know, bought a bunch of newspapers and then he built it into this. They owned at one point 20th Century Fox and Fox TV and Fox News, of course. And now they've kind of sold off all their IP and they're really just a news business again. It's called News Corps again. But regardless, Mm -hmm. that's kind of like the general framework of this Mm -hmm. uh, uh, story. And I don't think, I don't know enough about the family to say if this dynamic is legitimate or or not. Although I do know that they have like one sibling that's kind of a hippie and one sibling that's kind of whatever. So there could be some loose dynamic correlation Mm. here. Okay. But what I think is interesting with the Logan story in the context of the show only is he's built up this company. He obviously has incredible amount of power politically in every possible way. And then at the same time, you know, when the Kendall, instead of identifying, knowing how fragile Kendall is, seeing his actions in any sympathetic light. That's right. He's like, Mm -hmm. he's coming after me. I'm going to kill him. Like he, he like, he is out for blood at his own child. And I'm like, what is that dynamic? Where does that come from? And and I never thought about it till, you know, because he's such a monster in my mind. I never thought about it until we started having this conversation. In a way, maybe this is the repeated um, intergenerational trauma. Like he is Kendall, right? In other words, he had this trauma inflicted on him at some early age. So he cannot see the consequences of his actions. He's always just attacking all the time, right? Right, right, exactly. And no matter what, if someone is not, capable of taking responsibility for their actions, looking at the abuse that they're perpetrating, that is ultimately the issue, right? Right. So intergenerationally, people pass down trauma. It happens in almost every family. There is something that gets passed down until someone interrupts it. Mm -hmm. Logan has done the opposite of that. He has enacted over and over and over again these horrible, monstrous abuses in all of his children, in all, in everything that he does. Right. It is so deeply disturbing. So just to clarify, I'm saying we can have empathy for what happened to him, right. but he's ultimately responsible because he's an adult with agency. Right. I agree. I don't think I have that much sympathy towards Logan, mostly because I don't know his backstory. Right. Um, but even just a few weeks ago, we were in the podcast, we we're saying, well, even though he's kind of a jerk and he's done the other thing, he is also a sign of his times. And you had to be kind of a cutthroat, you know, kind of as a critique of capitalism itself, kind of you had to be, this used to be the kind right. of CEO that was the right kind of CEO. Like it's just right. that the culture has shifted, et cetera. And we were forgiving him for being kind of just a dinosaur, but you know, mm. that's just the way mm-hmm. things were. And then right. over the past few episodes, he's been like, so brutal to his kids. We're like, nah, he's just a monster. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think again, the, the, the other thing that can often play out in a narcissistic family system is playing the children against each other. Absolutely. And we see that so intensely. I mean, it's literally to go back to actually the beginning of our conversation, you were mentioning something about like, it's like, it's so, it's very repetitive. Mm-hmm. And something that I keep going back to is that they're having the same conflict over and yep. over and yep. over again. 
Exactly. And it's almost always based on this sort of splitting that he does where he splits his children apart for his own purposes. Mm -hmm. So you can't really develop a true sense of self in that kind of unsafe, volatile environment with a parent. You also can never trust anyone. Yes. So every relationship that you have, as we see in across the siblings, none of them really know how to maintain a true, close human relationship. They have no idea how to do it. Maybe that's a segue for um, speaking mm-hmm. about one of the other siblings, which, you know, mm-hmm. as you're saying these particular things to me, especially about the family dynamic, I keep in my mind thinking over and over again about Shiv. And yeah. of all the characters, Sona and I both on the show, when we we're doing recaps, we really can't get a handle on her, not because she's mm-hmm. not well-defined, but because yep. we find her psychology, unlike Kendall's kind of arrested development and yep. Logan's pathology of narcissism, definitely narcissistic, mm-hmm. right? That's yep. kind of pretty straightforward. Not, not straightforward, I shouldn't say that, but it's pretty- It's uh, more clear, yeah. More clear, yeah. And what yeah. I find confusing to me is to get a read on mm. because she's yeah. the most frustrating character to me. I feel like she so utterly lacks self-awareness. I feel like mm. she thinks she's a good person, but she's such a mm-hmm. terrible person to Tom, the person who's mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. And then she competes with him and then partners with him. And then and lies thing. to him. And, yeah, yeah. And, and cheats yeah. on him. And then also with her family, she has a similar right. dynamic where supposedly this liberal and this mm-hmm. uh, outlier within the family. But then when it comes to family business, she's as cutthroat as anybody else. And once again, she like makes fun of her brothers for trying to curry favor w- with the dad. But then she does exactly the same thing that I find so frustrating. Yeah. And yeah. Obviously interesting. I actually feel very similar about Siobhan. Because she's very hard to place. In some ways, the the thoughts that I've sort of formulated about her are that on the one hand, we could say that she's perhaps the healthiest sibling mm-hmm. in the sense that she <laughs> has, <saying> something. <laughs> you know, which is saying, which is really saying something. Yes. Right. And in some ways, I would chalk that up to she's often sort of um, framed as like Logan's favorite. Mm-hmm. She's the only girl. There's something where she maybe has gotten whatever tiny amount of love that he's capable of. Mm-hmm. At the same time, he manipulate. We see him manipulate her constantly too. Oh, absolutely. And like maybe and it's an argument could be made. Maybe even more than any of them, he manipulates her. Once again, just to jump ahead with the most recent episodes, he has turned on her in the past few episodes yep. in it's such a brutal way. She comes to the rescue of the business in the next episode, mm-hmm. the one you're about to watch. Mm-hmm. Not only does she not get a thank you from him, he turns on her. And yeah. uh, a couple of interesting points about some of the things you mentioned about the dynamic. I believe she is the youngest sibling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do agree that I think that maybe in his older age, as he was uh, mellowing Logan, you know, he calls her pinky. I think maybe mm-hmm. she as the baby did get some of that affection that maybe the mm-hmm. the boys did not. And maybe because she was a girl, I mean, he definitely is a toxic masculine figure. Yes. He probably did not uh, dote on the boys. And he you know, probably right. was more comfortable allowing himself to do that with, uh, with a daughter. That makes sense. I mean, he turns on her at every curve, really. Yeah. But keeps telling her, oh, you're my favorite. You're my favorite. And like, and right. then he ignores all the advice she, he gives exactly. her. Exactly. <laughs> so him. there's a lot of 
there's a lot of, I think, sexism, Mm -hmm. like in terms of like, there's a lot of macro elements going on too. Of course, we could talk about like the systemic psychology of it. There's a lot of sexism in in their relationship too. I think the one thing that I initially thought about Shiv is that when I said like, potentially she's quote, the healthiest, what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is in some ways, she developed her own identity outside of the family. <laughs> she has right? her own pathology. She, she her has own. <laughs> her own. Yeah, she has her own set of bullshit, but it's <laughs> right. not, you know, it's not there. So <laughs> right. So she because she like she had this, you know, she had this political career. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. sort of she sort of, as you said, frames herself as a liberal. Right. As a good person. Mm-hmm. But I think ultimately I always go back to on her wedding night with Tom, oh right? My God, yep. mm-hmm. She says, Hey, just so you know, I don't think I'm cut out for monogamy and we're, I, we're going to have an open relationship. And you see again, that same theme. It is so difficult for them to become close to mm-hmm. other people and have right. a real human connection with somebody. And it shows how that thread really kind of, manifests itself with each sibling in different ways. And so it's so interesting to just in terms of TV criticism lens, when we think about who we sympathize with, mm-hmm. it's so nobody fast, on this show, you know, we sympathize with somebody for a second. And then yep, we, yep. we're just like, Oh my God, it just shifts so fast. Like with Kendall and Siobhan, I would say, for me in particular, I, I, I have found that kind of whiplash where I yep. start to sort of sympathize because you also see Siobhan more than the, the one out of all four siblings. I would say she's the one that they most often portray trying to have a real connection with Logan and say, right. hey, dad, no, really, like, can we just be real together? Right. right. We right. see her do that whether it's about business or it's about her saying, please don't sacrifice Tom or whatever it is. Right. That's a, that's a sort of pattern where she's like, can we be real? And he can't do it. They can right. never do it. I think that she has an idea about herself. It seems right. that she doesn't want to give up. Right. I totally agree with that. Yeah. A couple of things there. One is talking about the people being sympathetic or not on the show. I think that's a, a fool's <laughs> errand. It's impossible to sympathize with any of these people. But yeah. I do agree. I know I've had this conversation with so many people who mm-hmm. were reluctant to get into the show because they all say that. It's either they said, I couldn't yeah. like anybody, or what they'll say is, I really liked this person. And yeah. then like in episode five, six, they turned into monsters and they're like, wait a second. Exactly. Like now they had nobody to sympathize with. Right. But yeah. I don't think the show's about sympathizing with anybody. I think, That's you know, right. it's more of like a critique. I mean, to be honest with you, I think there's a couple of criticisms. One is, mm-hmm. I think there's a capitalistic critique here Absolutely. saying that when you are like, you know, if you're mindlessly capitalistic, if that's how you live your personal life, then nobody ends up winning. Right. Cause everybody's just the competitor in the end. Right. Exactly. And I think that another critique here is kind of like a micro theory I've come up with this season is that I think this is also a political metaphor. Oftentimes, politically, you might feel like there is enough will in the populace to get a certain bill passed or something to happen. And then what happens is that the powers that be really just want to divide us so that we, if we are all just fighting amongst ourselves, then we never really have to deal with the issue at hand. Absolutely. And uh, and I think that politically, that's the metaphor that Logan represents, right? That Logan, every time he's a little threatened, he just has them fight amongst themselves and that's it. Now his hands are clean and he could go on to doing whatever he wants to do again, right? I think that's kind of uh, what the dynamic is playing out. I think that looking for someone to sympathize with is not what the show's about. 
Yeah. But uh, but at the same time, I think these characters are extremely well defined. Like you mentioned, I think that's what's interesting about me thinking about their psychology and like, why did she do that? Why did she say that? Some shows, it's literally like, well, she said that so that the next scene can happen or like the next plot twist right. can happen. This right. show is not about that at all. It's about. No, it's not. You're right. That's a good point. Yeah. And actually, now that you mentioned that, I, I it's making me it's reminding me when you first texted me and to see if I might want to, you know, come on the podcast and talk. I've never gotten through the show because they're all so despicable. <laughs> right. <laughs> so exactly. You're saying like, this is like a theme, right? With the show where people kind of, you have to get into it. Right. I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the metaphor about politics. And in some ways, even to go back to Shiv for a second, that brings up a really important point about the idea of liberals right. being somehow outside of the divisive, toxic, sort of dynamic uh, that is politics it's like no actually everyone is culpable right and she in some ways maybe she kind of represents that too and so it's interesting to think about like the way that individual dynamics individual pathology individual family pathology can have so much global control (laughs) it's like the fact that the the people that are at the top that control all the wealth and power that their own tragic disturbing dynamics unfold and affect billions of of enterprises and millions of people you know yes. it's it's just really something mm-hmm. it's so funny to have this conversation with you because you haven't seen the most recent episodes and so many things that you are describing are culminating in these episodes. Mm. So in last week's episode, the one you haven't watched yet, they were picking the next president, quote unquote, and they end up selecting this guy who's a straight up fascist, openly a fascist. Mm. And Mm -hmm. uh, basically their take on it is they're only worried about who's going to help them out with the DOJ investigation. And simultaneously, Mm -hmm. they're also thinking about, wow, we put this guy on TV He's going to get a younger audience. He's going to get like these alt-right young people and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. they're like, good job. That's the guy to pick. And to your mm-hmm. point, their purely personal stakes mm-hmm. can have mm-hmm. national consequences, but they don't yep. care because it's really just yep. about their stock price or whatever they're concerned with. Right, everything. right. Because they're right. above all of it, right? Like they're just not. Right. It goes back to what Logan said at the end of season two, when he said to Kendall to not worry about that kid dying because he wasn't a real person, right? It's like only, you know, you only have to worry oh about God. real people, right? It's unbelievable. It's <laughs> right? so see from season one, the notes that I was taking, it's the same shit. Right. It's the same themes over and over. So even without knowing, in some right. ways, even without knowing the most recent episode, it's just unfolding. It's like a fucking runaway train. And the other, the other sort of thing to go back to kind of thinking about it from like a developmental standpoint, if you think about when kids are growing up, as you know, because you're a dad, there's a very um, crucial but temporary part of development where kids need to feel like they do have power, right? Mm-hmm. They can be like, I'm the king of the castle. I'm going to be in charge of like my pile of stuffed animals, daddy, you have to do this, mommy, you have to, and you, we play along, right? Because we want, that's part of their developmental struggle and their learning, right? Right. Is like, they understand that they have their own individual human agency. And it's an important part of the fundamental development of the self. Mm -hmm. At the same time, 
if you have unchecked power and literally billions and billions and billions of dollars, that fantasy that is eventually broken, right? Mm -hmm. Because it needs to be where you realize, oh, actually there are other people in the world that matter. I'm not the only one that matters. You grow up and you realize, oh yeah, like actually to have relationships, I need to share. I need to have interactions where I'm actually not in charge. I have to make space for other people, other people's feelings matter. That's like how we all develop into adults. When you have unchecked power and money, that kind of goes away. Right. And I potentially, and I think that that's another thing about this family and about the political metaphor of this family, because you have so much power and money, you don't have those checks and balances. And so you, it's just like this it running rampant and it's really destructive. This is off topic for, <laughs> you know, a TV show, but a little thing that I think is a cultural problem in general. I think that I absolutely agree that, you know, these incredibly wealthy people oftentimes are completely disconnected from the evil that they do. But, you know, unlike a lot of the political discourse that this is something that affects only like the 1%, for example, mm -hmm. I think we're all culpable of this. I know, for example, that, right. you know, I had a conversation with a friend of mine who eats meat and I was explaining to them like the cut of meat they were eating. Mm -hmm. And they're like, meat comes from a bag. I don't want to think about the fact that mm -hmm. this is an animal that I'm eating. Right. right. And right. I'm like, well, at least you could do is acknowledge <laughs> that you kill right. an animal to eat it. Right. right. So right. and I think that's the thing. Right. We live in a world and culturally it's it's the it's inevitable. You throw something into the garbage and it's not recycled or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to say the words to say, like, this is what I stand for. Mm -hmm. But there's actions we take every single day that have consequences. Right. And we're all disconnected from those consequences. It's just right. that the Absolutely. more privileged you are, the, the more disconnected you are. from Exactly. It, right? Exactly. And that's kind of a disease of that we all suffer from, unfortunately. That's right. Good point, Victor. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. But speaking of all of that, and I think that maybe we'll leave Roman for last, even though he might have the most twisted psychology. I mm -hmm. did think when you're thinking about the pampered youth, and another thing you mentioned is you're wondering if the writers are actually thinking that far ahead. And I'm like, I, I don't know. At first I was saying, I don't know if the writers are really thinking about these psychological profiles of all these characters, or if it's just mm -hmm. like fortuitous, they're kind of just developing a character and then writing into it. But then mm -hmm. I thought the next character, I think we should talk about, he's one of the funniest and maybe the most inconsequential, but I, I really mm -hmm. like this actor too. It's mm -hmm. Connor. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But I want to bring him up because of what you were talking about, about being pampered and how you never really grow yeah. up. That's and right. I do think that I that you have something there as far as the writers doing a real psychological write-up of these because Connor has a different mother than the other three. Mm -hmm. And he had a very warm mother, but this, uh, you know, the second mother that he married, this who, who uh, is royalty or something, right? Isn't she like, mm -hmm. uh, she's like you know, very, mm -hmm. so he, maybe he bought, married her just for opportunism and maybe she came from a, a colder background, but regardless, mm -hmm that the first wife kind of pampered a Connor and he was the only kid. So yeah. he not only kind of enjoyed the spoils of this lifestyle, but had yeah. probably a pretty stable home and got the money without the toxic relationship with his dad who was kind of pretty absentee until he was older, you know, so you yeah. have that dynamic. And then you have the three siblings who of course grew up together. And I think that is why even in the show, you feel that they are way more competitive with each other than yes, Connor. Connor's just kind of out there. Not only is he older, he's also just kind of like not part of this toxic stew that the three of them. Yeah. Have. He's, he's very feckless, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. It is a blended family. Yeah. There's something about the way that he is outside of it all, but also you see the way that he has been pampered. Like you said, like what's coming to mind right now is that scene when they're at the, that benefit, that gala thing and the butter is cold and (laughs) he goes back into the kitchen and freaks out (laughs) on the service workers who are like working so hard to cater this event for like hundreds of people. Right. And he's just like, has having this temper tantrum. It's breaking the bread. The bread's getting ripped up. (laughs) It's just, I think I would have to say what comes across the most about Connor to me is that he is the stand-in for Trump. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's extremely, he's like a toddler and he has had privilege his whole life. And I mean, obviously the metaphor is pretty clear. He's running for president. (laughs) Right, right. But there's something about the family dynamics, about him being kind of on the outside where he's both the most kind of ridiculous one and sort of like seen as kind of a joke, I think, by everybody, but also just sort of he lacks self-awareness maybe out of the most out of everybody too. He's a really interesting really interesting character and really in some ways comic relief, but also in some ways like the scariest, he's like a quiet sociopath in a way. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's scariest because you can picture that, you know, like if all the cards line up the right way, maybe he does become president. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He's got the name and he's got just, you know I mean? He's got just enough going on that he could maybe get in there. Uh, This is a recommendation for everybody out there. If you haven't seen this and I'll recommend it to you as well, Sarah, but uh, did you ever see being there? Have you ever seen being there? No. Uh, It's very different than this, but I just came to mind. I highly recommend this. It's a movie from the 1970s. It's a story of this rich man who dies and, uh, Peter Sellers plays this guy called Chance who does the gardening at his house. And he's like uh, <laughs> mentally slow. He's like intellectually disabled or developmentally disabled. Developmentally, yeah, intellectually disabled. Basically, when the, the rich guy dies, he is on the streets. Like, you know, the maids and everybody leave and they're like, uh, you know, you're on your own. You got to figure this mm-hmm. out. And basically because he has the right kind of pedigree and he lives in that house and maybe it's never explained. Maybe he is like an illegitimate child to this rich man. Who knows? But little by little, he starts to accrue famous people around him. And he says really naive things because he's just a gardener and he talks about how like, you know, you have to plant your seeds at the right time of year and all this stuff. And everybody around him, all these like intellectuals around him think that he is like a guru or something. Mm. And uh, little by little, this like, you know, guy who really should have no kind of political power starts to become a political symbol to, to a mm-hmm. bunch of people. And it actually goes into that in much more depth than Connor's character here mm-hmm. in the, the this story. Mm-hmm. So he's not as disabled as Peter Sellers character is in there, but mm-hmm. I think that there is some overlap there in what they're trying yeah. to represent. So yep. uh, yeah, if you haven't catch, I don't know where it's available. I'll put it in the show notes if it's available to stream anywhere, but yeah. It is like, I love that movie. It's one of my favorite Mm -hmm. movies. So uh, I haven't thought of it in a while, but it's called uh, Being There. Um, Last sibling that we have to talk about Mm -hmm. for sure. What is up with Roman? Roman has, he's uh, asexual potentially. Uh, He has some Mm -hmm. sexual dysfunction. He can't actually have real Mm -hmm. sex with anybody. He has some kind of hangup where Kendall locked him up in a dog cage when he was young, but he actually Mm -hmm. wanted to be locked up. So there's some weird power dynamic there. And um, he's very misogynistic. We'll see even more. You'll see even more in the most recent episodes. He's got so many sexual hangups. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, 
uh, like maybe represents this kind of like incel kind of culture, but mm. he's a, mm. a vol cell. He's a voluntary celibate. So I'm not mm. sure <laughs> he mm-hmm. could have sex with, I'm sure he's, you know, he's a Roy. He could definitely hook up if he wanted to. So mm-hmm. it is, but what's your read on him? I'm so excited to get into Roman. It's like, so <laughs> I am so glad that you are excited to talk about Roman, saving the best for last, let's say. Mm-hmm. If we're talking about diagnosis, in some ways, he's the clearest. Mm, okay. And I think potentially the most important to talk about in terms of diagnosis. And the reason that I say that, he shows very dangerous signs of antisocial personality. Mm-hmm. The way that he sort of interacts with everyone is extremely cruel, right? Mm-hmm. He, uh-huh. he lacks empathy in a really... I think, very disturbing way. Mm -hmm. At the same time, he also is very like darkly funny Mm -hmm. um, and has some of the, you know, we could say best one liners of the show. (laughs) Right. right. And I think you're right where we could see him sort of as a stand in maybe for like an incel um, or a troll that he seems to almost take pleasure in hurting people. Mm -hmm. Just really troubling. He almost is gleeful in making others feel bad or uncomfortable or making them suffer. The other piece for him, I think it all always goes back to the satellite launch. um, (laughs) Where he, again, it goes back to unchecked power, where as opposed to Kendall, who carries this weight of guilt about being responsible for killing this innocent boy roman has no guilt right and so he lacks empathy and he also lacks guilt and shame and those well the shame is another piece i guess i should distinguish that from guilt but he seemingly lacks guilt right right? on the other hand as you were saying about the the story that we know about him being put in a cage similarly in the same sort of thread when we see him with his girlfriend, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting her name right now. He's trying to have sex with her and she, he's asked her to pretend that she's a dead body. Oh, there is something about this sort of perversion, something really twisted, being caught up in something gratifying. So it's really psychosexual. I mean, I could get very Freudian about it, but I think from a different kind of maybe more again, empathic perspective. It also plays out in the way that Logan treats him, right? Logan smacks him. Logan says horrible, horrible things to Roman. In some ways, I would say in a more abjectly cruel way than he does the other kids. He is constantly swearing at him and Roman is always kind of joking it off, right? Right. Which is then he what he transmits to others as well, right? Exactly. Exactly. So he plays it out over and over again. And I think that ultimately from a psychoanalytic perspective, there's a way in which when you grow up with a parent and in a family that sort of treats you with such cruelty, there's something that happens inside of you where this is, again, the person who is supposed to be the most loving, trusted object in your life. And I say object because that's, well, that's kind of going into something more complicated, but the most Mm. loving, trusted person in your life is supposed to be your parent. But when they treat you with such cruelty and abuse, 
you cannot actually process that as a child because you depend on that person, right? Right. So you have to somehow reconcile that inside of you. And so what ha- what can happen is that you have to sort of say, well, this person, I depend on them for care and love. They're treating me horribly. I have to somehow believe that this is the way that love is because I can't, I don't have any other choice. Right. And what can happen in development around that is that you start to sort of confuse love and affection with cruelty. Mm-hmm. It all gets really tangled up together. And that's why we often see things like people who are abused in childhood will repeat patterns and become involved in abuse with abusive partners later in life. Mm-hmm. It's often also where, where cycles of abuse get reenacted over and over again, where there's victim blaming with women who can't leave an abusive part. Why do you keep going back to him? Right. You know, it's a cross wires thing that happens inside where you have to somehow reconcile in your in your mind and in your heart this person is treating me this way but I love them and depend on them so I have to make this work and that's really I think at the crux of how I think about Roman hey, one thing that you mentioned that was very interesting was I'd forgotten about that whole sequence with the ex-girlfriend Mm-hmm. And how it's not about a particular sex act, but it's about the transgression. Like when he gets mm-hmm. the office and then he masturbates onto the yep. the window. Like, so theoretically people could see him if they were looking up. Yep. And it makes me think about like when Jerry was like yelling at him yes, uh, and then right. he starts like exactly masturbating. Right. right? And, exactly. uh, and then that becomes in his mind is like a relationship they have now. Right? Yes. So. And it's, and it's gratifying to him, right? right. Him, her insulting him has become sexually gratifying. Right. Right. Exactly. I think, again, like the the sort of antisocial stuff, a lot of it is is you don't really see people as people. Right. You see people as objects. And so we could see that with the scene where he's trying to have some kind of sexual interaction with his girlfriend. We can see that with even with that masturbation scene you just mentioned. We can see it with the satellite launch. People right. are not people to him right. because he's never been treated like a person himself. He's been treated like an object or a problem. That's how sociopaths and, and really like serial abusers are created. They are objectified. They are never treated like people. It's really dangerous and, and scary. It's very f- interesting having this conversation with you, by the way. And this is why, to be honest, is the reason I wanted to like start this podcast is I think that by just having conversations, oftentimes about not really important things like this TV show, which is not mm-hmm. that important, <laughs> you end up talking about important things. And right. uh, what I think what's interesting here, and this is probably the intention of the show, and I didn't realize it until now, is that I think these characters don't just represent these kind of realistic interpersonal reactions and maybe what happens in the lives of these one percenters or whatever. I think it also is trying to do some kind of social commentary in the characters themselves. So you already touched on Shiv maybe represents a certain type of like entitled liberal that says right. the right words, but like, what are their actions regardless right. of what their words are, right? right. And then with uh, all these things you're talking about, how you just see someone else as an object, you're incapable of seeing them as a person. So you have no empathy towards them and it makes mm-hmm. you behave monstrously and maybe even homicidally towards that yep. avatar, even if it's not a person itself, maybe he won't actually kill anybody, but he right. basically doesn't care about the outcome. It makes me think about that internet culture, right? Where oftentimes- yeah. 
people would say say horrible and do horrible things to each exactly. other when they're like separated from them that they would never say to their face obviously. exactly mm-hmm. and maybe living in a bubble like that you know living that kind of lifestyle just yeah. forces you to eventually start it's interesting you called people objects before i know it's like mm-hmm. a psychological term but mm-hmm. i do think you start to treat people like objects right because they're not yeah. real things they're not real people i mean they're just things yep. that you're interacting with and then it's all about just getting that zinger in having the funniest meme having the the wittiest mm-hmm. thing to say and you don't care about the consequences because they're not real people anyway and i think right. that there's something that's being said there as well uh, so that's right. pretty interesting Right. Yeah. And I will explain that just briefly. Like, so there's a psychoanalytic theory called object relations. And what it means is that we all have internalized relationships between self and other. We have, let's say you have experienced a primary relationship in your life as either manipulative or cold or cruel, and that you are inside of you you have a relationship with that object, that cruel or calculating or cold object as you either submit to them or you relate to them as, as I was saying before, as you have to sort of create a loving relationship with that, that object that's cruel, you internalize that dynamic. That is sort of becomes ingrained in you and you become, you start to sort of expect that from everyone else around you. Mm-hmm. So it's something that's that's ingrained early and you sort of ex- expect it completely independent of what's actually happening in reality. That's what you expect from other people, which is another thing about Roman. He's so defensive. He is always, always waiting for someone to say something cruel to him. So he's saying something cruel first. Right. He's always on the, well, on the offensive even. He's on the defensive or the offensive all the time. That's a different kind of fragility than, say, Kendall. But it, it's all—it's also a fragility. You can see again with Roman how he's such a, a little boy inside too. Right. I have to say, I do. Uh, Kiernan Culkin's performance is really—it must be really hard to live inside that character. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about the characters is a little behind the scenes stuff. Apparently, and this is very interesting of the dynamic on the show, by the way, mm-hmm. is that everybody on the show, Brian Cox as Logan, is an old school British actor who's kind of mm. like, I'm just acting, you know, like just kind of a lot of the other characters, like they're all foreign, by the way, except for mm. Kieran Culkin, but like Shiv mm-hmm. is Australian, the actress, okay. uh, Sarah, Sarah Snook. Uh, they, uh, you know, have this great relationship with the writers. They basically have writers for each one of their characters and they mm. get to not only do the script, but then they get to improvise on their own and they wow. kind of mesh the improvs together. So apparently... They love working on the set, but Jeremy uh, Strong, uh, the actor, he is a method actor and he's always in character. And when everybody's partying and everything, whooping it up on the set, he goes to his trailer, stays in character, and he only comes out to do his scenes, right? So uh, it's very interesting to kind of think about him, uh, you know, as an actor and then as this character as well. Like you mentioned how Kieran Culkin might, you know, have a problem inhabiting this character, but maybe Mm. not, right? Maybe it is like- you know, that he he gets right. to be the worst version of himself, but then it's right. all a joke on set, right? Right. And, uh, so, it, it, but it's interesting to think about the psychology that as an actor, you have to kind of, <laughs> you know, right. deal with sometimes, right? And I don't know if Kendall, right. on the other hand, you were talking about like kind of being psychologically traumatizing. If uh, Jeremy Strong is always in character, I don't know what kind of drama he's doing to himself. There. Oh my God. Yeah. Now that you mentioned that, I actually feel very bad for Jeremy Strong. <laughs> right, that exactly. must be a terrible method. <laughs> 
right. acting to be in, yeah, to be embodied in that. So, yeah. uh, so that gets us through the siblings and I know we're going long on the interview, but I really have had a great conversation, but I did, as I got you out the door, I did want to know if you have any other characters you wanted to throw some psychology at the two that I'm most interested in. I don't know if you have takes on them at all, mm-hmm. but one is Tom and one is Greg. Greg, I think yeah. is the most like easiest to empathize with. He's my favorite character to empathize with. He's like mm-hmm. kind of an audience surrogate in that mm-hmm. he's just thrown into the situation and he's pretty yeah. opportunistic. He takes his shots when yep. he can, uh, yep. but he, you know, but I understand his motivations all the time. <laughs> like he's very easy yeah. to understand, right? That's actually funny. I was just thinking we hadn't gotten to um, Tom, Greg, or Marsha's the other one. Oh uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Greg is also, I would say probably, I mean, I mean, whatever Roman sort of one-liners, they're so tense and kind of gross that mm-hmm. it's not actually that, much of a, like levity to it, but I would say for true true comic relief, I really appreciate Greg. Right, and I think that he. I hope we get to know more about his background too. We don't right. know much about his mom, but there's a lot of sort of implications about his relationship with his mother. He seems really pigeonholed as like the dumps, you know, yeah. yep. like he doesn't really know what's going on but he actually kind of does like yeah. he, he mm-hmm. seems actually quite calculating mm-hmm. in sort in the just you know especially i would say with him saving the papers that he was supposed yep. to shred exactly i would like to know more about him before i would like have too much more to say but he's really really interesting for yeah. sure and uh, and like i mentioned before it's like his like psychology in general they don't have a problem with and I, huge props to everybody on this cast by the way but especially yeah. to nicholas braun in this character because like you said he makes me laugh more than anybody else <laughs> because like you said roman he's like the internet troll the ugly <laughs> meme that you see that makes you laugh but it's like wrong you know <laughs> and uh so that that that's what you know kieran culkin's delivering with the roman performance mm-hmm. but greg on the other hand has to say these things that are <laughs> like on their face so naive right and yep. he just is able to just pull these lines out. Yes. And it's, it's incredible. Yep. He's just yep. cracks me up. He's just so yep. funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Tom, on the other hand, who's also oftentimes funny, is also just so utterly yep. mean spirited all the time, especially yes. with Greg. He's usually funny when he's with yep. Greg. He's usually miserable when he's with yep. anybody else, but he's yep. funny when he's with Greg. But still, his brand of humor. Uh, and it's interesting that Tom and Greg have this partnership on the show. I, my okay. theory of it is that Tom is like, Greg is the only person, this guy who's like a first year <laughs> intern or something, mm-hmm. is the only person there that he can like crap on without any yes. consequences to himself. Yeah. So I think that's why he, he bullies him so much. Yes. But his th- dynamic is very interesting because he's always looking to bully someone, but he's constantly yep. being bullied. That's right. Tom is also, again, a wonderful, I mean, the acting on the show is just like superb. Yeah. And not to sound pretentious, but it's true. <laughs> right. And I wish I knew more about Shakespeare because I feel like Tom and Greg's dynamic is sort of like how it's like, Shakespearean tragedies are actually comedies and vice versa. Like they have, they provide this sort of break from the intensity because every interaction they have is so sort of messy and disturbing, but also like when they're in that, the weird office that Tom offers Greg, Mm -hmm. that's like this, it looks like some kind of old mail room or something. Yeah. The storage closet. He he starts like punching him. It's like so ridiculous. It's absurd. The absurdity of it, I guess. And Tom, I think a little bit of, of his personality came out a little bit more when 
he was on the beach with Shiv and was sort of like actually standing up for himself and saying, I'm actually really unhappy. I'm not happy, right? That actually, I think in terms of his ability to stand up for himself, that was something that was unexpected and maybe says a little bit more about his personality and character and that he was taking a stand. But then on the other hand, as he's becoming more and more sort of petrified and terrified that he's going to prison. Right. And he goes and says to Logan, I will be your sacrificial lamb. Right. He's extremely complex. Yeah. I think that he is also obviously so power hungry. I think in some ways, maybe the most addicted to power in Mm -hmm. a way, because he will, will do anything to maintain his position. I mean, they all will but he has this particular sort of way of perpetuating that, that is really, I don't want to say pathetic because that feels, (laughs) but it is a little bit, you know? And I think that he's has a very sort of shallow sense of himself. Right. And that moment with Shiv was maybe the one moment that we saw him trying to actually be himself, but it's was very sort of, temporary. And I don't know if there's like a diagnosis for this type of thing, but I almost feel like I had people that I knew like back in high school, let's say, or when I was at a fraternity, when I was older, that there were certain people in my diagnosis is these are people who don't know themselves at some core level. And they're kind of like doing the thing that everyone else is doing. And they're like, kind of like, Hey, look at me guys. I'm in with you guys. See, I'm doing the thing. Very well said. Very well said, Victor. Yes. And, and and it's like that, right. He's always like trying to like make a show that he's like doing the right thing, but I don't know if he knows himself that well, or, or if there's something there that basically if there is some core to him, I don't think he's presented it on the show because either he's not aware of it or it's just something that he doesn't present to anybody. Right. So. Right. And actually to go back to your point about him kind of shitting on Greg, that's kind of, it seems to be in some way his abusive outlet. Like he gets to kind of act out his rage on Greg because Mm -hmm. he can't do it anywhere else. Right. And again, to go back to like, if we think about the sort of threads that we've talked about this our entire conversation. Again, the characters like throughout, they don't have a sense of self. They don't understand their own minds or their own emotions because they're so terrified and they're so stunted. Right. And I would, I would include Tom in that actually. Yeah. Now that I've, you know, I always parallel Greg and Tom because they have so many similarities, but I Mm -hmm. almost feel like, you know, Greg on the one hand could, I I always joke that Greg's going to like win the whole thing in the end, you know, he's Mm -hmm. like subtly always in the room when he's not supposed to be. And little by little, cause he's like forgotten (laughs) that he uh, will eventually pull control the strings of power. That's, I doubt that's what's going to happen, but I wouldn't, you know, like at the same time, I kind of almost root for it in a way, but at the same time, I feel like maybe Tom is Greg 10 years ago and Greg, Mm. like little by little, just kind of like one compromise at a time is just kind of going with the flow and saying, well, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Right. And then he ends up. That's a great point. Absolutely. Yeah. Tom is Greg's mentor for doing what Tom did. (laughs) Right. To do the wrong (laughs) thing. (laughs) All right. That was great. Thank you so much for all your time. I really enjoyed that. I (laughs) I. I think I had made some realizations here that I wasn't even expecting. So that was great. 
Great. I have a couple of uh, uh, quick questions for you. One is, um, so mm-hmm. we, maybe, you know, when the, the um, maybe when uh, the season ends, you know, so you can catch up on the ones you've seen and then there's a mm-hmm. few more episodes still. Maybe mm-hmm. uh, if there's any additional takeaways, we can have a follow-up conversation, just a shorter oh, yeah. one, much shorter, yeah. <laughs> much shorter yeah. than this one. All right, awesome. Thanks, Victor. This was great. Yeah, I love it. This was great. Thank you so much for asking. It was wonderful. Thank you. All right. I'll I'll talk to you soon, buddy. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye.